We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, we're back in Acts chapter 6 tonight. If you turn there, we're going to look at the first deacons, Acts 6, 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. God led the church here to establish deacons to free the apostles, and I think by legitimate extension, pastors, elders, for prayer and the preaching of the word. They did this by way of, we could say, by way of example uh, to the future uh, well-ordered church. Let me read chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brothers, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, the church had been primarily Jewish in character up to this point, but we see by now it is beginning to expand to the Greek-speaking Jews, that is the Hellenistic Jews and the priests, and also in various regions, geographically, Samaria, Damascus, uh, Gentiles, and Caesarea, and elsewhere. As the chapters unfold in the book of Acts, we'll see that. This expansion is natural because the body of Christ is not ethnically bounded, is it? The body of Christ is not ethnically bounded. Human nature is the same across all peoples of the earth. The work of Christ as well makes no distinction between people, whether uh, whatever color or stripe they are, uh, slave or free, uh, male or female, high or low, rich or poor, all in need of Christ equally. And so it makes good sense that the church was expanding in all of those areas. Now, a problem arises in verse 1. Uh, we're not surprised by this or shouldn't be because the church is made up of uh, people and people have problems. People have sins. Uh, and then there are just things that aren't necessarily particularly sins, but just logistical, organizational issues that come up. And there may have been sin involved in this. I'll mention that. But the need was the feeding of the congregation's widows. The text says that the church was multiplying, and so we would expect some growing pains, things that worked when there were 
100 people in the church don't work when there are 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 as the case may be. In fact, just a little while ago, I think we read that the church, the number of the men came to be about 5,000. I uh, don't remember the verse address right offhand, but if the men is five, are 5,000, there must be women and children in, in the mix as well. And so uh, I just was, uh, when I wrote this originally and then I was looking at it again, I was thinking, you know, considering the numbers for a second to get an idea of the scope of the problem. If your church has 5% of its people who are in a situation that they need assistance, 5%, you know, of people like that are widows or that are, you know, imagine if we had no social security, no social, no social safety net whatsoever. What percentage of people out of our, say we have 100 people that we, you know, minister to, more or less. I mean, not everybody comes and we don't have that many on a Sunday morning, but people that we touch and shut-ins and all of that. Five per 100, is that unreasonable? People that don't have family to care for them, stuff like that. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. But without the safety net that we have in the U.S. today, they might all be lacking basic necessities of life, housing, money to pay the bills, food, and so on, clothing. The percentage of widows in Jerusalem may have even been higher if, as some have suggested, that Jewish widows from the dispersion would travel back to Jerusalem to spend their final days. So they weren't <laughs> with their husbands anymore. And then look at the size of the Jerusalem church. As we said, 5,000 men, perhaps 10,000 people total. At 5%, that makes 500 people in some kind of need. Supposing some of them had Christian family that was willing to help them or neighbors or friends, there might still be several hundred people in need of assistance. That's a lot of people for whom to be distributing assistance, isn't it? The daily distribution that we're talking about here in the end of verse number one is probably food and other necessities. It could have been money, which allowed the widows to purchase food themselves. Um, in either case, it was a large job to see to the needs of these dear people. Now, what was happening to these widows before they were saved? Before they became Christians? Who was helping them at that time? They obviously didn't starve because they were still alive by this point, so... I suppose that it's possible that they could have been supported by the synagogue. Jewish people are, at least some of the ones that I know today, very um, philanthropic and uh, understand uh, the need to help one another and very familial-oriented, some of them. And so perhaps they had that amongst them in their synagogue. But when these widows converted to Christ, what happened to them? They were put out of the synagogue, and then what did they have? Benevolence or social need is what they had, and that was shifted from one community of people, the synagogue, to another, the church. Today, of course, the need for such benevolence is greatly reduced because of the government programs such as Social Security and Medicare. And by the way, even if there weren't such a thing as Medicare, uh, which there wasn't, for most of human history, uh, you know, you're not owed Medicare as if it's a human right. Yeah, you see? I mean, we, we get kind of accustomed to it and think, well, we have to receive that. No, actually, sometimes 
What would happen is people would just get sick and die early. That's why the lifespan was lower. So I'm not saying that Medicare or those kinds of things is a bad thing. I'm just saying if you didn't have it, you didn't have it. And you couldn't expect the church to come along and provide it because it didn't even exist. I mean, the medical care didn't exist at that point that was able to help with some of these kinds of things. So anyway, the problem was uh, pretty big and it was acknowledged because of people's compassion and a recognition of God's heart toward the widow and orphan. See, you do want to help in as much as you can. Some things you can't do. You know, at some point you come to the, the point, even the doctors today, you know, well, we need to we need to gather around and talk about this, guys. And uh, there's not many thing, anything more we can do. We need to go home and, ho- and get hospice and all of that. And so, But still, we want to do what we can do. And so because God's heart is inclined toward the widow and orphan like the Bible teaches us, you know, true religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Watch your tongue. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, 17 and 23 talks about widows. And boy, oppressing a widow in ancient Israel, that was the big no-no, wasn't it? Yeah, you don't mess around uh, like that unless you want God on your tail or on your head. So so the church went about to solve the problem. But as we find out in in verse 2, they didn't do it in a way that was comprehensive or forward-looking enough. So they did have a daily distribution. Perhaps their solution was okay when the church was smaller and more ethnically um, um, homogenous, we'll say. But it wasn't working now that the church was larger and less homogenous. So the problem became this, that there were some widows in the congregation who were neglected. And I'm assuming now that the complaint that's recorded here, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution, that's not just them whining. That was a real problem, okay? A real complaint, a real situation. They weren't just making up a a complaint because they wanted to complain. Rather, their issue was a legitimate one. The widows who were neglected were the, what what are they called? See that there? The Hellenists. The Greek-speaking widows, that is, those who had adopted, uh, let me say it this way, those who had been brought up in and naturally were just accustomed to the Greek culture. They weren't in the Jewish culture. They hadn't been raised in the Jewish culture. They were no fault of their own, uh, but a Jewish person might look down on them because they speak Greek. They don't speak Aramaic or Hebrew in their home life and stuff like that. But look, from a little girl, maybe they were raised that way, and they married into that, and, and they just lived that way. Okay, There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Of course, there are sinful aspects to any cultural expression, and those need to be rooted out. But as far as this goes, there wasn't a necessity to charge them with ill-doing. And so the text then doesn't tell us exactly what was happening, except that they were being neglected. How? Well, um, maybe the culturally Hebrew Christians were the ones who happened to be the distributors of the daily food allowances and, or money, and they were biased against the Greek-speaking women. Christians aren't immune from that kind of bias, are they? 
one of the ugliest things is to see that kind of bias in a Christian person. It's ugly enough to see it in the world, right? When people are biased against somebody because of their religion, culture, race, sex, whatever. But uh, especially bad when Christians, so-called professing Christians, act that way. Informed, perhaps, by historical prejudices and the like, Christians should be the first able to put aside such biases. Perhaps the Hebrew Christians were giving more money into the treasury to be used for benevolence. So look, if we give more in, we ought to get more out. Or perhaps the Hebrew Christians were experiencing a momentary oversight due to cultural or geographical distance, and maybe there was just some more logistical issues involved in this than, uh, than some kind of you know, conspiracy of, of um, uh, what? Prejudice, I guess I'd say. So the disciple or the apostles, rather, the 12, met together when the problem was brought to their attention and came to an agreement on what precisely should be done. They formulated a specific recommendation and gave it to the entire congregation. Their recommendation included a couple of things. Number one, a general approach to solving the problem. And what was that general approach to solving the problem? Namely, their solution, the apostles' solution was that they themselves would not solve the problem. <laughs> okay? they themselves were not going to solve the problem, but that they would delegate the actual solution of it to a new group of men tasked with that responsibility. So don't charge them with being do-nothing. They weren't do-nothing. They were somebody else do something because it's not appropriate for us to spend our time doing that. They also recognized that though they could theoretically be involved in solving the problem directly, it was not desirable for the leaders to use their time to solve it because they had their own responsibilities and particular gifts that could be better used another way. And so both things are necessary, ministering the word and prayer and serving the tables, helping the daily distribution of food. Both are needed. They are at different levels of importance for the, per, the individuals that are involved in them. Okay? So people gifted to teach the word, it is not important for them to be waiting tables. People who are gifted in service and not gifted in teaching the word, it's not important for them to be teaching the word. See, that's, that's outside of their, we say today, outside of their lane. Okay, You're gifted to be in this lane, stay in this lane and do that. But if you're over here, even though you could do this, or you could try to do this, you shouldn't because you have a particular assignment uh, to do in the church. And so uh, they uh, didn't, shouldn't have replaced time spent on a more important activity with time spent on a less important one for that particular person or gifted, giftedness. And then they also set a policy and method for selecting who would be involved in this matter. You notice that it says they uh, said, uh, you know, it's not good that we would, you know, kind of get sidetracked. Therefore, seek out from among you men, seven men, 
They have to be of good reputation. They have to be full of the Spirit. They have to be full of wisdom. And evidently, they have to be able to lead or to delic- to, um, to serve in a way that they can manage and, and do a responsible job over this business. Now, I'll just make a little side comment here. Uh, one of our favorite commentators on, in books of the Bible, Homer Kent, uh, suggests that waiting tables... Uh, or serving tables should not push us to conclude that they were like waiters at a restaurant, these new servants of the church. First of all, they were appointed over the business. Okay, They didn't necessarily do all the table waiting themselves. These seven probably organized a bunch of people that would do the service and make sure that it was they, they would see to it, in other words. Um, they managed it. Also, a, a restaurant picture in your mind may not be a very accurate picture to have because the hundreds of widows probably didn't all come to a common cafeteria and eat. They all had their homes that they lived in in different parts of the city and all that sort of stuff. So they probably ate in their homes. Maybe serving tables was not even serving food at the table, but maybe it was a bank table a money table where the folks could go and get the food themselves, you know, get the money, support, and then go buy their food. It could also be a food bank sort of situation. Not everybody likes everything, right? So (laughs) that was true back then too, okay? It wasn't like like they all ate, you know, uh, whatever, rice and beans, and they were super happy about it. They had tastes as well, and so... um, But anyway, regardless of the details, the apostles shouldn't leave their job to dispense food or money from the church. That's a ministry better suited to other people. Now, you might think when these guys are picked that, you know, they're kind of like lower on the food chain, no pun intended, lower on the, uh, um, you know, uh, totem pole than the apostles or pastors in a sense, you know, you could say that, but but they were doing a very necessary task as well as helping the apostles do their very important task. So the importance of what they were doing had to be measured not only in the thing they were doing, but in the fact that they were freeing up somebody else to do their thing. You see, you might think, whoa, you know, being a pastor, that's a pretty high calling. But cleaning, you know, vacuuming the floors on Saturday, that's kind of eh. But what if you're vacuuming on the floors, allowing the pastor to sit in his office for another hour and study the Word so he can give a better sermon on Sunday morning? Then your vacuuming is actually ministering, and it's just as important as the preaching. You with me? But if nobody's there vacuuming and the pastor has to see to it, and nobody's there cleaning the bathrooms and the pastor has to see to it, and nobody's and the apostles have to see to it, then... You're taking them away from something else. So you have to look at it in a holistic manner, not just, oh, I'm I'm vacuuming the floor. (laughs) You know, such lowly service. Putting the relative measure of value aside, you know, preaching or vacuuming, say, preaching or waiting tables or praying and waiting tables, putting the relative value of those aside because it's not important. Think of the qualifications that were required. These men were not, you know, 
guys, just go to the highways and hedges and go pick any warm body that you find and put them over this business. These guys were highly, highly qualified men, spiritually mature, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, able to, to manage uh, the business. Um, and, and you notice the, the requirements of these fellows, just top-notch Christian gentlemen, top-notch servants, full of wisdom. They had to know how to handle the situation. They had to be wise. They had to know the needs, the resources they had, how to put those together, how to get things logistically organized. They had to have moral qualifications in this task. Men of good reputation. Why? Do you want to put scoundrels over the work of money changing? I don't think so. Or uh, handling all the food? No, they're going to they're going to just multiply the problem that you have. You need to have good guys over this, over the resources. They can't be swindlers, embezzlers. So if they're faithful in their life generally, they should carry that should carry over into their conduct in their new assignment. So you can't just put any old body in these places of service. You have to have qualified people. And I might add, as we come near to a close here tonight, that these folks, Stephen, for instance, who's listed here, and the others, Philip, later on, are men who actually, I might argue, are overqualified for this job. I mean, Stephen is preaching on a regular basis, and he, you know, he gets whacked, stoned, put to death because of his Christian testimony. And Philip, later on, if this is the same Philip, you know, ministering throughout the area, teaching, um, and we don't know about the other guys, but very, very fine servants of the Lord, which reminds me that people who are deacons aren't just people who do menial tasks of service. Deacons are leaders. Deacons are responsible people. They're highly qualified, wise uh, people, just like we have in our own church and church history here. Guys who were counselors. That's why we call it church council, kind of. You know, it's not spelled. It's not spelled the same. But guys who were capable of helping to lead the church and giving wisdom and guidance and input and and uh, being sounding board and all of that sort of thing. So that's where I'd like to close for this evening. Uh, about halfway through this portion, there's more to go. So we'll we'll get there in just a, a lickety split week from now, Lord willing. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that we've had to study the word a few minutes together tonight. Would you watch over us and help us to think what lane do we have? Where are we supposed to be serving uh, so that the work of the church can go on most effectively. And thank you for the result that we see in the text. Then the word of God spread and the disciples multiplied. We'll see that next time. But may that be the case in our assembly. In Jesus' name, amen.